Welcome back, Brown Girls. It's Ashanti, the host of the Brown Girls Guide to Politics. And today we're talking about the She Session. To date, the COVID pandemic has caused the worst global economic crisis we've seen since the Great Depression. It's no surprise that women of color, especially our frontline and essential workers, were hit the hardest during this time. With the slowdown of our economies and the increased vulnerability to COVID from working essential jobs, women of color are faring the worst during this time. The fact is, the she session didn't begin with the pandemic. Women of color, particularly Black women, have been notoriously underpaid and divested from in the United States for countless years. In this episode, we're diving deep into the economic hardships women of color have endured. Our first guest is Aijin Poo, co-founder and executive director of the National Domestic Workers Alliance. She will discuss the ways essential workers and domestic labor have changed during this time. Our second guest is managing director and COO for global investment research at Goldman Sachs, Giselle George-Joseph. She talks with us about Goldman Sachs' 1 million Black women initiative and what it's like when corporations make investments in the Black community. I hope you enjoy this episode. Hello, everyone. I am so excited today. Y'all know I'm always excited. We are talking to Ai Poo, who has been one of the leaders at the forefront for workers' rights during the pandemic. Ai thank you so much for taking the time to join us. How are you? I'm well, and I'm so excited to be talking to you. I am excited to talk to you. First, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the National Domestic Workers and the organization and the wonderful and very important work that you do? Sure. Well, we represent the two and a half million women, mostly women of color, who work inside of our homes, providing caregiving and cleaning services. So all the nannies, the house cleaners, and the home care workers. And this work is essential. We call it the work that makes everything else possible because it is this care that makes it possible for all of us to do what we do every day. And yet it's some of the most undervalued and invisible work in our economy. And our mission is to change that, to really lift up this workforce, build the power that we need to make sure that these jobs are good jobs that are truly valued as essential. So I worked at the Department of Labor. So this is when I got my education around the need to have good workers' rights for those that are in our home. So what was it like for you? You're advocating for all of these workers and then this pandemic hits, a pandemic that forces a lot of us not to be able to leave our homes I just really want to ask you, what were your immediate thoughts? What were the organization's thoughts? And most importantly, what were the workers thinking and feeling? You know this, that before the pandemic, things were already incredibly rough. Mm -hmm. Most domestic workers worked incredibly hard and made poverty wages without health care, without access to a safety net, without job security. 82% of domestic workers didn't have a single paid sick day coming into the pandemic. 
So what we saw was immediately people started losing their jobs in dramatic numbers, no jobs, no income, and worried about how they were going to put food on the table for their families literally the next week. We had a meeting with our members in March where one of them held up her phone to the Zoom screen to show us that there was literally one cent left in her bank account. And that was March of 2020. So it was really dire really quickly. And our immediately our organization kind of jumped into action to see how we could both provide immediate relief that people needed to take care of themselves and their families and to keep safe and to advocate on behalf of these workers getting protections and relief and justice in the situation. During this time, we know it was rough for so many people, as you just pointed out. What are some of the things that we still need to keep an eye on and pay attention to as we're coming out of this pandemic? We know that it's not going to easily be sunshine, rainbows and lollipops. Yay, the pandemic is done. There's still so much work to do. Right. Well, we're in kind of a gray area where we're still trying to figure out what is safety and what does it look like? And if you're vaccinated, how do you know that the people that you're working for are vaccinated? And do you feel like you have the power to ask them if you're desperate for work? Um, You know, we find that in the economy, it's always the people who have the least amount of power and resources who have to bear the brunt of the burden of safety and navigating the hardest situations, being put in the most impossible situations. And we were hearing from workers that they were nervous about asking for time off to go and get the vaccine when they were available to them because they might get fired and lose their jobs. And we still have one in four domestic workers who have no work whatsoever. And those that do have work are underemployed. So they don't have enough to make ends meet. And what you just said about, you know, being scared to ask for time off, you know, just to go get the vaccine and one of the other conversations, you know, I'm, I'm an employer, I'm a boss. And for me, it was immediate. You get the time off to get the vaccine. You get the time off to recover. You don't have to take sick days that there's just so much that still needs to be done that not everyone is a good employer. Not everyone treats their workers fairly, especially our domestic workers. That's exactly right. I wish all employers were like you. I mean, one of the dynamics when you work in a part of the economy that is so undervalued and unseen, where most of the workers are women of color, we basically are in a Wild West kind of situation where if you happen to get lucky and find a good employer like you who recognizes your humanity and your dignity, great. But there's the whole other end of the spectrum where you have human trafficking, you have sexual assault and harassment and everything Mm -hmm. in between. And that's why we've been working to really establish protections, why it's so important that all of us really talk about how valuable this work is to our economy and how really emphasizing the incredible humanity and contributions of the women who do this work. 
And you talked about the protections. You all have been championing, championing. Oh, let me say that word again. (laughs) You all have been championing really key legislation to improve the rights, the lives of domestic workers. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you have been working on and as voters, constituents, how can we support in these efforts? Yes. So we have spent the last decade trying to win protections and fairness for domestic workers in state level labor laws. And we were successful first in New York state in 2010, where we passed the first domestic workers bill of rights. And I'm so proud to share that this year, Virginia became the 10th state and the first state in the South to pass a domestic worker bill of rights thanks to the great organizing that happened there and our sister organization, Care in Action, that has mm-hmm. been mobilizing women of color voters to have their voices heard in the state of Virginia. And an incredible Black woman leader, champion, Jennifer McClellan yes. in the state. Yes, <laughs> I, I love our her. Isn't she amazing? She's amazing. And she has, she comes from a line of domestic workers, mm-hmm. right? Of uh, women, black women who did this work and struggled to assert their dignity. And when she hooked up with our movement and became our champion, it's just been extraordinary what we've been able to accomplish. Um, and Virginia being the first state is really, really exciting. First state in the South. It is. So I currently reside in Virginia. And I tell everyone, it's amazing to see just what has happened over the past decade. But we know we can attribute that to having the Jennifer McCullens and all of the other women, women of color, LGBTQ women, who now occupy the House of Delegates and the State Senate. So we know that when you have women in these elected positions, this is the type of legislation that you get. And it's really life-changing. So Aijin, close us out. What are ways that we can continue to stay in touch with you, the National Domestic Workers Alliance, and make sure that this is an issue that is in the forefront of our minds as we continue to come out of the pandemic and make sure that we're supporting domestic workers? We are living in such a critical moment. I hope all your listeners are tuned into the fact that we could pass transformative legislation in the American Jobs and Families Plan to support our care workers. Right now, Congress is discussing the potential of investing $400 billion in home and community-based care for the elderly and people with disabilities and raising wages for the home care workers who are majority women of color, a third Black woman. And it's an extraordinary opportunity to create good jobs for women of color And that is what we want to do. And so we hope that your listeners will get in touch with their members of Congress and say that you support the CARE agenda and Build Back Better and get involved with us at CARE in Action and the National Domestic Workers Alliance. $400 that's life-changing. That can do so much good. Yeah, we're talking about over a million new good jobs for women and women of color. 
And the fact that women of color were excluded, black domestic workers were excluded from the New Deal labor law protections, and now the biggest jobs plan since World War II puts those workers front and center, it's kind of extraordinary. Yes, yes. Aijin, thank you so much. We appreciate your time. And thank you for giving our listeners this valuable information on what they can do during this time. Appreciate you. Appreciate you. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Hey, everyone. We are going to talk to Giselle George-Joseph, the Managing Director, Chief Operating Officer for Global Investment Research at Goldman Sachs about their new initiative, One Million Black Women, where they are doing a $10 billion investment in Black women. When I first heard about this, I knew I absolutely wanted to talk to someone at Goldman, and I get to talk to a phenomenal Black woman who's leading this initiative, but also is just a total badass with everything that she's able to do at Goldman. So Giselle, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you? I am well, and it is such a pleasure, Shanti, to be with you today. So I have to tell our listeners one of the quotes that we pulled that you have said, and I just found it so powerful and it'll help guide our discussion. You said, we found that if we can equalize black women's positions because they are one of the most marginalized groups in this country, then it's not just an investment in black women, but it's an economy that's working for everybody, which is just so true and want to get just a little bit more into why this initiative. We've seen a lot of corporations make investments in the Black community over the past years, but Goldman Sachs is making one of the largest and focusing it on Black women. With all of the directions that you could have done, you know, are gone in with the pandemic, with racial injustice, why this particular direction? I mean, it's so funny that you start there because one of the, the questions that Dina Powell and Margaret Anadu and Lisa Poco and Asai Pompey, all, all these amazing women at the firm who've, who've been working on this, on this project, one of the questions that we keep getting asked is why black women and why now? And, and there's so many answers to this, right? But, but just, to, you know, just to state a few, one of the more startling realities in the research that we saw was basically a narrowing in the gap between white women and black women that happened in the 80s. And now we see that expand again. Imagine back in the 80s, we had narrowed that gap between black women and white women to 5%. And today we're back to 15% of a gap. And then when we look at white men, there's a, a wage gap, a wealth wage gap between black women and white men of 35%. Like that is just phenomenal. So why black women, why now? Because we did the research to tell us exactly what you said at the start, that, that black women continue to be one of the most marginalized groups in the United States of America. And if we're not investing in black women, it's going to be very difficult to narrow that gap. So that's, that's where we're starting. This is not meant to be only black women, but this is meant to be, we're gonna take one of the most marginalized groups in the United States of America, and if we invest $10 billion there and another $100 million in, in philanthropic capital, 
then where can we get that group? So it's, it's just a start. And I love that you said that, that is just a start. And you hit on this a little bit. We know that black women are underpaid, they have less wealth, but they're still more likely to give to others, even when they don't have that much to give. How have you seen during the pandemic just the financial impact on black women? It's actually quite sad. You know, we, we have a phrase in and, you know, I, you will see I go back and forth from the person who, who helped to do the research and, you know, and, and a black woman myself. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, we have this phrase in, in the black community that um, when when white America catches a cold, then black America catches pneumonia. Yep. And we definitely saw this during the pandemic. We know from the research that black women generally the ability for black women to remain employed tends to fall during a recession and it takes black women a lot longer to recover. And we saw that again and again and again in the pandemic when the labor department would report that the unemployment rate was going down, but then for black women, it was actually going the other way. And so all of this reinforced the importance of what we're doing here at Goldman with this $10 billion uh, investment. And a huge focus has really been on small businesses. And a report by Goldman confirmed that Black women are foundational to households and to the well-being of our total economy, just as you told us. And other research has also shown how racism can cost our economy money. And a report actually showed that over the past 20 years, racism has cost the economy $16 trillion. How do you see a way for this initiative to bridge that gap? And still, whenever I say that $16 trillion just due to racism is astounding. It's interesting because, you know, one of the the biggest takeaways from the research was one, just acknowledging the underinvestment, right? Like getting all that data together and showing, hey, we have a problem here. And then what we did was actually do the analysis to estimate the point that you made earlier, Shanti. If, If we are to equalize black women's positions, what would actually be the impact, right? And and what we saw was a substantial increase in US GDP by $300 billion a year. So this is not just the right thing to do, trying to equalize black women's position. It's great and we should do it and there's a moral reason for doing it, but it actually is a very smart investment. And to the point that you made about racism costing the US economy, you know, real dollars, one of the um, most important takeaways we also saw, again, when we looked at the, the wage gap between black women and white women increasing over the past two decades or so, uh, one of it that was most alarming was the fact that a lot of the reasons we were seeing, we couldn't quite measure. Why is mm-hmm. there that gap between black women and white women as it relates to to the wage gap? Um, and that these are the, the factors that we we can't really measure, you know, discrimination, access to capital, access to networks, the quality of schools, not just getting an education, but the kind of schools that that black women go to versus, you know, the average white guy or the average white woman. So so, you know, to your point, a, a lot of these these uh, factors or these measures can uh, we can't really put into numbers, um, but we can actually put a number of loss there. And 
I want to ask you about some of these terms. We always hear wages, money, wealth, and especially building generational wealth. What does that mean? And how can we actually start doing it as we come out of the pandemic? We know that times are still very hard for the majority of Americans, but we especially see with our black, brown, indigenous women, our women of color, they are so dedicated to make sure that their families are strong, that you know their grandkids, their nieces, their nephews don't have to deal with the financial hardships and setbacks that they did. So what what are just like some of the steps that we can take to be financially sound? Of course, I don't hope we ever go through this again, but to make sure that we are able to weather these storms. I think first to answer your question about, you know, what it is, because to your point, we throw the word out there. Um, if, if we sort of put it into just general language, when we say that if we take earnings and black women experience a 35 percent hourly earnings gap, and then we look at single black women specifically, and, and that gap widens even more. I say, here's a real example, right? If we look at single black women in an average year, or let's look at 2019 specifically, a single black woman had the, a median net worth of $7,000. This is $92,000 for a single white man. We're saying everything she owns, her house, her car, just minus the debt that she has, everything she owns, $7,000 in 2019. So that's kind of, if you think through that, that's the real picture of what it is, which is really alarming. And, and you know, there are some basic foundational things in this country that, that help us to build wealth to the point that you were making, what are some of those things, right? And to give a few examples, because all of this is sort of interrelated, right? Like where you live, how you live, your health, um, your access to capital, uh, the type of education that you have. You know, we one of the listening sessions that, that we have, because part of what we've been doing is we, we want to hear from black women about how they think we should spend that $10 billion. Where, do, where should we invest? And so we've been doing these listening sessions that have been so important to the entire project. And one of the, the listening sessions, we had a, a young college student say to us, you know, so many sacrifices that we make as black women, we are on, you know, on the road to one set of career and because of either lack of finances or, or sort of lack of support or, or lack of know-all, know right? Like just not having the access to somebody giving you the information you need to make the right decisions, you end up changing track. And, you know, you have one goal in mind and, and one sort of focus area in mind, and then you end up changing what you want because you can't afford to pay for it or you don't have the, the network or the mentoring around you to help you get to the end of that, that specific uh, line or to achieve it. And so, you know, these are all the things that we're trying to do in, in the One Million Black Women initiative is, is really to sort of think through a woman's life cycle, specifically mm. in this case, a black woman's life cycle. And how do we support that black woman through sort of every key area in her life to be able to help when she gets to an adult to have the opportunities that will enable her to have a good life here in the U.S. and, and to have very positive life outcomes. 
Thank you for that answer. And I'm still just shocked about that 7,000 to like 92,000 gap that absolutely, that puts a lot in perspective and it shows just how far we really have to go for women's representation financially. So Giselle, I appreciate you joining us today. One final question. You told us that you're just getting started with this initiative. What are your long-term hopes? What are you excited to see as this amazing, amazing initiative progresses? So we've obviously started to make some investments and it, it is it is exciting and it's heart wrenching and it's, you know, I, I kind of joked in, in our black tongue hall earlier this week that it's, it's, it's equal part pain and joy. The, mm-hmm. the research mm-hmm. on black womenomics, the, the program, I think we spend half our time crying and half, half our time jumping with joy that Goldman Sachs is doing this amazing initiative. But I think for all of us who are involved in this program, I think what we want to see is progress, right? Like one, we're, we're great at Goldman at putting a number on something so we can actually measure it. So part of why we have the 1 million black women is because, and we've had this before with 10,000 women where we, you know, we invested uh, money in, in um, mostly emerging countries around the world. And then we had 10,000 uh, 10, small businesses where we focused here in, in America. But, you know, Dina Powell likes to say we invited men um, for this one. So it's a little bit broader. And now we focus on 1 million black women. We want to be able to measure our impact. How many individual black women's lives are we impacting with this program? And every single one of them will matter for us. You know, one of the one of the quotes that one woman said to us is black women aren't asking for a handout. They're asking for a hand up. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these issues that we see and a lot of these gaps that that black women continue to experience are a result of structural factors, systemic factors. Right. It's not the black woman not working hard enough or trying hard enough to get out of that that hole, so to speak. It's really really sort of structural and systemic factors. One of the the points that we bring out in the research is the intersectionality between gender and race. What what, what makes black women's difficulties in the in the US so pronounced is in part because they are women and because they are black. So you have the gender part of it and you have uh, the, the, the racism part of it. So so we know all of this. We are we are loaded with information. We've made the commitment. And I think what we really want to see, especially now as we get all of this feedback, like so far we've we've um, we've touched, I think, over 12,000 women in the listening sessions, black women who are telling us, hey, we need to focus here. Hey, we need to focus here, whether it's education or access to capital or, or housing, you know, all those different factors, health that impact black women. Um, I think we, we really just want to see how many women we can touch and, and hope that we go way beyond one, one million, quite frankly. But, but as I said at the start, this is just the start. And we're hoping, and again, we're not doing this alone as, as Goldman Sachs. We're doing this together with black communities. We're doing this together with black leaders. You know, 17 black leaders make up the advisory council um, prominently across, you know, education and, um, and government and finance. And, and we're just really excited to see what kind of progress we can make. 
so amazing. I'm excited to keep up with it and all the amazing work that you're going to do. And I know for me, this is just another reminder of how important it is to have black women in high level positions across all industries because it helps make this work possible. Giselle, thank you so much for dropping all this knowledge on us today. Really appreciate you. Thank you, Ashanti. So amazing to be with all of you. When the first jobs report came out after the pandemic hit, I wasn't the least bit surprised to see that the majority of the losses have been amongst women. At Emerge, the organization that I lead, we had expected to see over 1,000 of our alums on the ballot. And yes, we were excited. Yet, over the first few weeks, I saw several of our alums decide not to run for office. Many couldn't collect the signatures needed to qualify because we were quarantining. Others had to focus on homeschooling their children. And way too many just couldn't do it anymore because they were now unemployed or the sole provider in their home. And they had to focus on making ends meet to support them and their families. The pandemic has shed a light on many discrepancies in our society. And again, we see how women of color can be so invisible in a society that relies on our labor and brilliance to thrive. The reason why I advocate so fiercely for having women in elected leadership positions is because we need our lived experiences at the table when decisions are being made. If we don't, we just get further behind. It will still be years until we understand the full impact that the COVID pandemic has had on women, especially women of color. But it doesn't have to take years for us to start advocating that all issues are looked at via the lens of how it will impact women. So in conclusion, now is the time for us to begin reimagining what a fair and equal economy just doesn't look like for women, but one that centers women knowing that when women rise, our entire society rises. And that is how we create a better future for all. Thank you so much to all of our listeners. If you love the podcast, please take the time to rate and review it on Apple Podcasts or make sure to subscribe on Amazon Music, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information on the Brown Girls Guide to Politics, check us out at thebgguide.com and on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at thebgguide. The Brown Girls Guide to Politics podcast is produced by WonderMia Network. You can find them at wondermianetwork.com. Check out our next episode where we will talk about the increase in violence to the Asian community and what we can do to stop Asian hate. Until next time, brown girls.